Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Consortium News has a piece entitled Slippery Slope, New U.S. Advanced Weapons for Ukraine. I think it should be entitled Very Dangerous and Deadly Game. But anyway, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War, and from 91 to 98, served as a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the U.S. made high mobility artillery rocket system, also known as HIMARS, will give Ukraine the capability to strike Russian targets roughly 50 miles away with powerful satellite guided missiles. Scott, this seems uh, to be foolishness compounding foolishness. Uh, Biden wrote in his op-ed, as President Zelensky of Ukraine has said, Ultimately, this war will only definitely end through diplomacy. Every negotiation reflects the facts on the ground. Uh, In Taiwan, he says we're following the one China policy while he calls for a sovereign Taiwan. Scott, the, the, the inconsistency and hypocrisy here is nauseating. No, there's 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 no doubt about it. Um. Look, Joe Biden is is literally on the cusp of getting the United States involved in um, two major wars with uh, the two premier um, powers in the world besides the United States. And they're wars that uh, we can't win. Uh, And they're wars that neither one of our potential opponents want to fight. But Joe Biden's mouth when connected to his brain, becomes one of the most dangerous weapons in the American arsenal. Not dangerous for us, but dangerous for the world. Uh, this, this man is literally a threat to national security every time he opens his mouth. And I'm not being, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be uh, trivial. I'm being serious. This man's mouth is going to be responsible for the death of thousands, if not tens of thousands, of Americans. And it's time that his cabinet shut him up. He should not be allowed to speak uh, because he simply is incapable of sticking to the script. Uh, there's a world that Joe Biden thinks should exist, uh, and Joe Biden somehow is such a narcissist that he believes that he can shape this world. This is how he behaved for 40-plus years in the U.S. Senate. This is the Joe Biden we all know and hate and despise. This is the man that I went toe-to-toe with because he literally doesn't know what he's talking about, and yet we elected him president, commander-in-chief, and now he's positioning us so that Russia is going to reach out and touch the source of the, of the weapons that attack Russian soil. What part of this equation does he not understand? China has said what you're doing 
is basically making it impossible for us to seek a peaceful resolution to the unification issue with Taiwan. We will have no choice but to go to war and war against you, America. They're saying this. This isn't me making it up. This is Jake Sullivan getting a phone call from the senior diplomat in China saying, shut up, Jake, we will kill you. And the Russians just came out and said, let me remind you that if you attack, if these weapons attack a Russian city, we're going to the sources, the sources of this weaponry, which means NATO headquarters is going to be a smoking hole. This isn't a threat. This isn't your wild speculation. This is reality linked to the mouth of an idiot. And, well, and, and to add to this, the, you know, the things that are going on, we've got um, Tam, Senator Tammy Duckworth. I know this is not part of this, but Sen- Senator Tammy Duckworth showing up in Taiwan and saying that the United States is going to be uh, is go- military is National Guard is going to be working with the Taiwanese military. And we see the basically so much. Absurd provocation. Tony Blinken running off his mouth uh, at his mouth. It's like the um, the Biden administration and the Congress around it seem to think they're still dealing with Afghanistan or Syria. It's like it hasn't dawned on them that they're actually dealing with nuclear powers and military superpowers. Scott. No, you're right. Look, Tammy Duckworth, it's not that she just showed up and, and let her mouth run. Um it's that she showed up and let her mouth run at a time that she is sponsoring bipartisan legislation that is putting in motion the things that will make Taiwan disappear as a nation state. What Again, if I, if I were the Taiwanese president, I would sit back and say, huh, how's it going for Ukraine right now? Not very good. That's my future if I align myself with these idiots. Instead, She wants to have the same relationship with the Hawaii National Guard that Ukraine had with the Florida National Guard. How'd that work out for Ukraine? Not very well. And now she's also trying to put money in so the United States has prepositioned weaponry in Taiwan. I will guarantee you this. The first time we preposition weapons in Taiwan will be the last time we preposition weapons in Taiwan because China will invade the next day. That's not me saying it. That's China saying it. We need to familiarize ourselves with, uh, you know, China's, you know, anti-secessionist law. I think it was uh, promulgated in 2005. It's constitutionally mandated. And it basically says we really, really, really want to do this peacefully. That Taiwan is part of us. You guys recognize it. We want to do this peacefully. But the moment you start behaving in a manner that causes Taiwan to think they can have, you know, uh, be an independent state, then we will have no choice but come in, come in and resolve this issue using non-peaceful measures. I'll let your imagination run wild. You just said something, Scott, that really clarifies something that Biden wrote that I initially just kind of dismissed. He says, we do not seek a war between NATO and Russia. As much as I disagree with Putin and find his actions an outrage, the U.S. will not try to bring about his ouster. Okay, well, we know a couple weeks ago he said the guy's got to go, but that's not the point. Here's the point. So long as the United States or our allies are not attacked, we will not be directly engaged in this conflict. If NATO provides these missiles 
And then Ukraine sends a missile into Russian territory. And then Russia responds by, as you saying, making Brussels a smoking hole in the ground because that's where NATO was based. Now Joe Biden has his entree to say we're at war. And it's not our fault because I told you that as so long as our allies are not attacked, we will not directly engage. Directly. And what if Moscow doesn't see the word indirectly and directly in the same way that Joe Biden does? No, but that's that's that. No, that's exactly my that's exactly yeah. my point. Um, so, Scott, you, you're saying what you just said now unpacks that one sentence for me that I just kind of dismissed as an as an idle comment by Joe Biden. Well, I'll just say this. It was an idle comment by Joe Biden because Joe Biden is dumber than dirt. I can guarantee you the moment he said that every senior policymaker went, whoa, 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 Joe, shut up. Shut up, Joe. We don't want war with Russia under any circumstance. Keep your mouth shut. The Pentagon is flipping over. They don't have weapons. They don't have troops. They don't have the ability to wage war against Russia right now. Germany is in a panic. Europe is in a panic. Everybody is in a panic because they, you know, the fact that the NATO is a paper tiger is becoming apparent to everybody. The fact that Russia really does know how to fight a war and win is becoming apparent to everybody. And so Biden is putting in place pieces that are going to set in motion events. Here's what I'm getting at. When Biden opens his mouth, you are wrong to think that the words that come out of it are attached to formal policy. There is no formal, because to, to put, to, if we're going to give credence to what he's saying, that means that the United States is setting a trap. The United States is trying to create the conditions for a conflict. No, we are not doing that because the generals are saying we can't win. Remember the generals that told Donald Trump, hey, don't bomb Iran because you're going to set in motion things we can't control. We can't guarantee victory. It will be very bad. And Trump went, "Okay, I'm not going to bomb Iran. Those same generals were telling Joe, shut up about Russia, because if you push this thing too far, if you create the circumstances which prompt Russia to retaliate, we don't got anything, Joe. You're setting a trap that doesn't have any teeth. It's going to fall in and go poof, and the Russians are going to punch you in the face. That's it. No, Joe Biden literally needs to be pulled away from the TV camera and never allowed to speak again because he is a threat to national security. I know, unfortunately. Bad news. Well, Scott, <laughs> listen to this. Here's another thing I want to get your comment on, where he says that what they're doing is they're doing this, basically says that that that, that um that when he talks about stalled talks and he says the United States will continue to work with uh, to strengthen Ukraine and support its efforts to achieve a negotiated end to the conflict. And they basically they go on to say that they're going to basically have a better seat. They're going to be in a better position as a result of fighting. Here's the thing about it. You're only in a better position as a result of fighting if you're winning. If you're losing, at some point, there all this talk about negotiated settlements and we'll keep fighting. At some point, doesn't Russia just say, we don't need a negotiated settlement. We took all the land we want. We'll take more if you we want it. You can't stop us. We're going to negotiate. We're going to issue a negotiation with this T-72 tank. That's how we're negotiating. Get out of our faces. Your thoughts? 
Well, that's what they're saying right now. Russia's not looking for a negotiated settlement. A negotiation implies equals. I, I, I negotiate with a business partner. I negotiate with a counterpart that has something to bring to the table. Um, was the United States ready to negotiate with Japan at the end of the war? Was the United States ready to negotiate with Germany at the end of the war? No. They were defeated nations, and we it was unconditional surrender. This conflict will end when Ukraine unconditionally surrenders. That's the only way it's going to end. I, I, I don't understand how anybody with any military sense thinks that the provision of four, let me count them, one, two, three, four HIMARS, that's what we're providing right now, they fire six rockets each. So let's just hypothetically say four times six is 24. So the Ukrainians come out and whoosh off 24 rockets. Now, where they land is going to cause a little bit of harm. I mean, a lot of harm. Some people are going to die. Okay, but we're talking about a conflict on a front line that is bigger than Great Britain. If you think for a second that 24 rockets is going to change anything, you are stupid. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be blunt, but I'm being blunt. These HIMARS are going to change nothing. Zero. They're going to maybe kill some Russians, and then they're going to die a very violent death because while they can go 50 uh, you know, kilometers deep into Russian territory, the Russians have aircraft that can go 1,000 kilometers deep and hunt these things down wherever they are. And once they fire, they're done. So this, again, we're dealing with imbeciles here who are providing the Ukrainians with weapons that may kill a few Russians but then be destroyed, and in the process – more Ukrainians will die. Zelensky finally had to come out and admit that he's losing a battalion a day, a battalion a day. And that's on a good day. There's some days where he's losing three battalions. Uh, HIMARS ain't going to change that. Military math is, is unforgivable, and the Ukrainians are on the wrong side of the equation, and we can provide the Ukrainians with all the weaponry they want, and we are. They're going to die. Now, some more Russians are going to die, and I've already said, that when you talk about billions of dollars worth of weaponry, this complicates the Russian victory. But notice what I said. It complicates the Russian victory. I didn't say that it makes Ukrainian victory possible, because it doesn't. The Ukrainians simply cannot win this conflict. There is no amount of weaponry you can provide the Ukrainian forces that, that gives them the ability to win. It gives the ability to make the Russian victory more costly, more complicated, but under no circumstance will Ukraine be able to win this war. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. At least four people killed at Tulsa Hospital. Gunmen had, quote-unquote, intent, police say. The Gun Violence Archive tweeted, breaking, the shooting incident in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is the 20th since Uvalde and the first mass shooting in the month of June. 
It is the 233rd mass shooting and the 12th mass murder of the year. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's one of the top lawyers in California, if not the country. His firm handles police misconduct, including excessive force, deadly force, false arrest, illegal searches, racial profiling, and jail abuse. Attorney John Burris, as always, John, welcome back. Well, good. Good to be with you. Unfortunately, I hate to be with you in a times like this. This is very troubling. Um, uh, to, just to think about the number of dead deaths that are taking place randomly. Uh, it's almost these almost feel like copycats now. That uh, some group does it, then another group says that that works. I get a lot of public attention from it. Uh, some of them wind up dead, but they made a point. And uh, the, the um, all of these are very very disturbing. The, the Tulsa one was really particularly interesting because uh, in a negative way because this was a man who was bad at his doctors, you know, and, you know, and, uh, who was providing good services for him, it seemed to be, and yet he killed that doctor and another doctor and two other people. And so devastating impact on that, that community, no less than the other communities as well. But I'm really concerned about this whole notion that, that uh, you solve all your problems now just by taking that person out and taking the other folks out. Anger management seems not to be uh, not to be in place anywhere here. But the question is: Is this a function of guns? Just the availability of guns? And if so, what can be done about it? Um, you know, these new things they're talking about, um, red flag laws. They don't seem to have been things that could have stopped any of these last two killings from taking place. Because the man who shot the, the four in Tulsa, he was just an angry guy based upon some medical treatment and a perceived lack of responsiveness to him. And, you know, red flag laws wouldn't have taken care of that unless there's something else that we don't know. Uh, and certainly he probably had a right to buy the gun that he, guns that he had. And so to the extent you can buy guns, there's nothing that's taking place now uh, in the Senate or in the Congress that I think would impact on the, the types of killings that are taking place now, unfortunately. You know, it's interesting you say that because the discussion immediately goes to, you know, gun control, which I think is a valid discussion. But, you know, I have a, a relative who was like a block away from one of these shootings in Annapolis um, a couple years ago, wherein the person was mad because a local newspaper wrote an article critical that this person had like been harassing somebody else because they were like totally mentally ill. And the newspaper wrote an article basically just, just describing what happened. They got mad at the newspaper, went in and shot like five people and killed one or killed I like remember, two. I remember, I remember that. And, and also, we, we haven't talked much about it, but there's really a lot of uh, shootings and deaths taking place from road rage. And it's almost you've got to be careful. We had a sort of a prominent uh, athlete here um, and that was um, – the victim of a road rage, he was just going about his business and apparently cut somebody off. The young man shot and killed him. And so that's pretty common that's taking place these days. So it just seems to me that the open guns, having the availability of guns, is is the land that we, we've moved into. And like it or not, there's never going to be any efforts on the part of Republicans or anybody to curtail these guns and the availability of guns. And I was reading an article uh, more recently. The gun lobby is so powerful, and the NRA is so powerful, 
that there's there's nothing anyone can really do to curtail them because the dollars are so huge. And if you look and see what the congressmen and senators are getting, even a guy like Mick Romney, who's richer, richer than anybody, has, has gotten over $13 million uh, from the gun lobbies. So that's being the case. You can't expect these people to do anything that's going to restrict uh, the purchase of guns, the manufacturing of guns, and all types of guns, whatever people want. So what can you do about that? And I think this is a, a conundrum that I think that we find ourselves in because constitutional rights here are such that it seems to me that there's not going to be a willingness in any way to restrict it. Now, they've changed the discussion. They're trying to from gun control to gun safety. That's an interesting discussion, and I would like to see how that plays out. But I don't know that it will anyway get you where you need to go uh, because people who are doing this seem to be mad. Uh, insane, uh, got some bad twist on, on life. And they could be perfectly sane one moment or uh, uh, brooding. And next thing you know, they figure that they've been uh, uh, slighted in some way and decide to take that person out. It's almost like the, the gangsters that we used to see all the time around kids, you know, these gang groups killing people on for revenge. And they still may be doing it. The only thing I would say is this, all these killings, you know, even though I'm in the business of police killing, shootings, these are not police cases. These are not police cases. These are citizens killing each other. Uh, and that's the, the sad part about it because that even makes you even more feeling unsafe. You know? you know, part of the irony that I see here is you, you were talking about gun safety. The NRA started out to be a gun safety organization and around the mid-60s, it started to shift, I guess, as the money started to shift, it shifted away from being focused for, on a gun, as a gun safety lobby, to becoming an advocacy group. And now it seems as though the the tide is 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 shifting, or the, the, the discussion is shifting in the other direction. To your point about legislation not stopping these particular shootings. I agree with that. But isn't the discussion bigger than that? And changing gun laws is one factor in or one variant in a number of elements in an equation. And so uh, ID laws gun access, there are a number of things that have to work together in order for there to be significant impact on these shootings in this country. Access to weapons is just one variable in a number of variables in a complex equation. I think that's totally correct. I mean, there's no one-size-fits-all here. You know, the issue that I, I see why I'm not optimistic it's because of the gun lobbyists, gun, the amount of money that's involved. If you look at, I was reading some article, and you talk about the weapons that these AK-15s and, and assault-type weapons are, are prepared for the military as well. And so the same manufacturers of the, of the, of the weapons that sell them to the, to, to the consumers also sell them to the, to the federal government for war machines. Well, I just think the dollars are too big there for any kind of restriction that anybody is going to accept. When you really get down to it, it's all about 
serious, serious money and the sense that that uh, if you restrict it in any way, you will curtail the flow of dollars. And and the other side of it, it's like it's like poor Republicans, poor people thinking that the Republicans have their best interests at heart. It really doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. Well, the gun manufacturers don't have the gun toters. And, uh, you know, they don't have those people's best interests in mind. They're thinking about making the dollars. And to the extent you have the gun and you mistreat and you kill some people, that's the cost of business that's incurred. I will say that there is a question, and there's going to be a move at some point, I believe, to hold gun manufacturers responsible. And I know they've got uh, a waiver that they put together to their lobby, a lobbying business some years ago. But that may be an area of being revisited, that, that, that somehow these guns of certain types have to have some control on them and that you cannot buy that particular gun without having some, some experience, some, some training or something that restricts their overall use because and availability. I don't know whether these gun rules that they want to put in play, the safety rules, the uh, you know, red flag rules, I think is good, or, or the one that everyone really opposes, and, and that's in registration. That is, they really fight this harder than ever, and that's on these private gun shows. They want to be able to exchange these guns without having to register them, and so they don't want to be dealers. They want to be able to buy and sell guns that's literally almost not traceable. Uh, and so it's a, it, to me, it's just a huge, huge problem that it's going to take a long time to chip away at it. But as long as we have the present Constitution, Supreme Court, and I hate to say this, things come back to lawyers and judges, because as long as you have the Supreme Court sitting there as a protection on, on, um, on, on, on Second Amendment and with the Heller decisions and others, then I don't think much change uh, and restrictions can really occur because no matter what Congress does, it's going to be challenged, you know, or what a state does. Like, for example, in California, we had a law that basically allowed, outlawed the, the, an 18-year-old buying these AK-15s, okay? It goes, it was a law. It goes to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit said that was unconstitutional. So they basically say you can't restrict an 18-year-old from buying an AK-15 or AK-47. You cannot do that. Well, if you can't do it, then what are we, what, what are we really saying to people? Because that's the Ninth Circuit, which is basically kind of a liberal place. And you can imagine what the conservative places will, will have to say. So. Yeah, and, and see, this, one of the other things that we have is, um, you know, I, I was in law enforcement. I worked in a lot of rural areas. And there's areas where people got a farm and they might have rattlesnakes and they're going out on their areas of the farm and that person carries a shotgun. There's wolves. There's various things of concern. Right. And so there's places there's I've always felt like this. You don't need the same exact rules in, in there as you do in downtown L.A. or downtown Baltimore. Uh, but but the, the thing about it is, as I see it. The military assault rifle is made for one thing, mm -hmm. and that's what it gets used for. It's not a hunt rifle. It ain't for, for varmints or rattlesnakes. It's for one thing, and as we see, this is what it gets used for. And we saw how dangerous it is, destructive it is, by, by the assault weapon that was used against these, these little Hispanic kids. They were not recognizable. The kids were not recognizable. They had been shot to pieces. These are powerful, powerful guns. And it doesn't make any sense, but you know, you know, they they did outlawed it. I mean, they provided for I should say outlawing it back in 1992 with the crime bill, but it had a sunset clause on it, and that that within 10 years it elapsed. 
Well, no one has had courage to try to go back and get it done because there's no appetite for it. There's too much money involved on, on, the, on the side. And I think that all this is viewed as collateral damage by the NRA, you know. And a point that you mentioned a little earlier, the Pentagon is protecting and funding the same gun makers Democrats want to regulate. Uh, Daniel Defense, Georgia-based company that manufactured the DDM4 rifle used by Salvador Ramos to carry out the shootings in Uvalde. The company has a $9.1 million contract with the Pentagon. Uh, so, so it's one thing for Joe Biden to stand at the podium and and wring his hands and, and cry crocodile tears o- over all of this, but the government is implicit in this problem as well. And, and that part, you, you can understand the government portion of they're trying to, the military weapons, because they have, that's a defense question. The question is, are they prepared to put any restrictions on the use, uh, on distribution to civilians, and not, you know, in the community? That's the, the real question. I, I don't have a problem with military weapons being sold to the military, because that's what you got to do. But should those same weapons be available to all of us, uh, everyone? The answer to that, to me, is no. Maybe because the money is the issue, what you try to do is put clauses in their contracts that prohibit the sale of those weapons to private citizens and, and force them to make a business decision. Do I want this $9.1 million with the Pentagon or do I want to fight this fight? Maybe, that, maybe that's part of where the answer lies. Yeah, but that's a lobbyist question. That's, that's a lobbyist question. You know, that's a lobbyist question. And one of the things we don't really appreciate, the power, I mean, you guys do, but the power of the lobbyists have nothing to do with what's right or wrong. It's when the lobbyists will be able to petition the government, which is in the First Amendment of the Constitution, petition the government. That's where the that's where the danger is, and that's where the power is, and so, and that only is about money, capitalism at its fundamental essence. Attorney John Burris, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Absolutely. Take care, guys. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Saker has a piece, Europe now cheats or suffers. Europe has now painted itself into an infamous corner with only two choices left, nothing else. Both are definitely bad and terribly expensive, probably unpayable in political and financial terms. On May 30, Brussels, A, dropped its previous declared strategy of buying Russia Russian oil to prevent Moscow from selling it elsewhere at soaring prices, and B, approved its sanctions package number six, imposing a ban on Russian seaborne oil imports. These actions, many of which are symbolic, would be laughable if they weren't so pathetic. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So your thoughts here, 
there seems to be a lot of hand wringing. There seems to be uh, a lot of declarations made. But when you peel back the onion, they really just seem to be diverting their purchases instead of eliminating them. Because at the end of the day, their factories have to run on natural gas. Their homes have to be heated and food does have to be put on the table. Correct. The Europeans uh, have to figure out where they're going to get the 65% uh, of Russian oil that is stopping, uh, you know, officially due to the sanctions. They have to figure out where they're going to get that from. And unsurprisingly, they can still get that from Russia, but it's going to cost them. So uh, that, that title, Europe Cheats or Suffers, I would change to Europe Cheats and Suffers. I think, I think they're going to cheat, but I think they're going to suffer because when the cheated oil, the laundered oil, eventually gets to, to Europe, it's going to be uh, double, triple the price uh, that it would normally be. And, and, and the way that works, I mean, it is really you know, very, very shrewd but ridiculous that you could have a tanker full of Russian oil leaving Russia and a tanker full of oil from somewhere else, non-Russian, full of oil, meet out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and pump oil from one ship to, to the next. Let's say they, they both pump uh, the same amount of oil, a half their oil available. So you end up with uh, two ships with half Russian oil, half non-Russian oil, and then you just have to ha you just uh, have to have an extra gallon of non-Russian oil to pour into the mixture, and voila, you have a whole two whole ships of non-Russian oil, and uh, you can do that over and over again so that you have pretty much completely Russian oil in a ship that's non-Russian oil. Now, when you do that anywhere, but you know out out at sea or at a port, that that takes labor, it takes time. And the persons who are doing that are, want, are going to want to be paid for it. And since it is really so important that that non-Russian designated oil get to Europe, they're going to ask for a premium to do that kind of work. And so oil that would be cheap coming from Russia is going to be three, four, five times what it would be. Uh, the Europeans will, will get that oil. Uh, they will cheat, but it, they will also suffer because of inflation that will run through the country. Uh, to the uh, to the to the continent. The other thing that you know, we talk about what happens to the the you know common man and woman on the street. You know, they're going to have to pay more, and they're going to suffer, and they're not going to be able to survive. Okay, but. You take Germany, you know, major, major industry. You've got in Italy, you know, these are countries with huge industries. And then, of course, French, you know, they've got wine industry. There's a lot of industry throughout Europe. And they have to compete with Chinese and American and Indian corporations. And if, they, and if India and China is getting fairly reasonable, in fact, what they're getting now is discounted oil from Russia. And these, uh, Europe is paying money to, I mean, taking, uh, having policies, instituting policies to literally increase the price on themselves, those industries are not going to be able to be competitive with the other world industries. And now you're looking at not just the price of oil, but um, massive deindustrialization. Uh, I can't even imagine the uh, you know, catastrophic economic consequences. Yes, if Europeans want uh, to, to continue to get the, the products that are manufactured in, in Europe, uh, they're going to have to pay a high price for it. Now, we can expect 
Americans to attempt to move into those markets. But, you know, you, Americans are not structured to be able to move into manufactured goods markets, uh, particularly of the manufacturing quality that you would get out of, out of Germany, for example. Um, you know, Siemens, uh, uh, medical uh, equipment manufacturer, uh, is is uh, uh, the height of German manufacturing? Uh, the U.S. is not going to be able to to replace those 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 instruments, uh, but there are already uh, supplies of suppliers uh, waiting online for those kinds of instruments further east. Um, uh, you know, beginning with the sea, and uh, and and so the Chinese are going to find that uh, they are their their goods are, are very competitively priced. In the European markets, we this is, I guess, more of a philosophical question and just a, a quick response from you. The United States is really suffering its its deindustrialization policy and as well as just in time manufacturing, because there's nothing in the warehouses to backfill what is not coming, what is what has been caught up now in the supply chain. And to your point, the United States is not a, in is not an in a position to manufacture these things because we've shut down our factories through the deindustrialization process. Right. Yeah, just in time manufacturing we really now know is is just as China manufactures it. You know, that's that that's the way it goes. So if China manufactures it, you get it. If they don't, if they shut down Shanghai for two months to get to uh, to uh, get rid of their COVID uh, problem, then there's no production for for two months. Uh, when those things are, are eventually out on, on, on the market, they will be at a premium as well. And so China will probably be able to recover its uh, in revenue from, from shutting down its manufacturing uh, because those prices, those products will be, will be so high. Um, and, and so, you know, this, these, are, these are lessons learned by, by Western um, um, demagogues who, who thought that everything revolved around them. Um, there's even a term in political economy where the Western countries were called the center and everything else is the periphery. Well, this is at least the tail wagging the dog, and the dog is pretty small, the tail is pretty big in these instances. Um, I don't think the West is, is quite accommodated to this new reality. And um, when, when, it, it, when, when it wakes up, we will have certainly a multipolar world where right now 80% of the world's population is not participating in these Russian sanctions, uh, but are in fact being drawn and drawn closer to to um, uh, economic exchange with Russia and China. Most of RT reports, most of the Ukrainian that EU members are going to be are cutting off aid to Ukrainian refugees. Poland will reduce benefits to most displaced citizens from the neighboring country next month. Uh, Poland is arguing that most Ukrainian refugees are able to earn a living. It's going to cut off aid to them next month. They've got three million people in this country of Poland, and I forgot Poland only has like nine million people. It seems to me they're saying that because they can't afford it, but. You've got, A, the issue of taking care of these people, but how are you going to get three million more jobs in a country of nine million people? They can't take care of themselves. That's an economic catastrophe waiting to happen, and I think we're on the edge of that also, and that's the six million Ukrainian refugees coming to Europe at a time when they're facing economic struggle. Dr. Tahir. Right. And, and of course, uh, those three and a half million uh, Ukrainians who are now in Poland are able to, to go 
to leave Poland and, and travel in other EU countries. Uh, once you're in the EU, you, you don't need a passport to travel around. And so I, I would expect those Ukrainians, they're not going to go back to Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is not going to be able to re- be rebuilt very quickly, if at all. Uh, they're going to go to other countries. And so the, the, the pain that is in Poland, I guess they're the designated uh, receiver. But those, uh, those Ukrainians are going to go elsewhere. Now, the problem is that those other yeah, uh, European countries, when the Ukrainians come in, are going to face the same situation that uh, Ukrainians are going to want to work. And if they can't get work, uh, then someone needs to take care of them. And uh, the, the, the European Union, because it is a euro, uh, each of these different countries are going to have differing requirements and, and, and uh, difficulties in dealing with these Ukrainian immigrants but they're not going to have, quote, their own currency to be able to deal with them. They have to actually get permission from the European Central Bank to create new euros. And so if, they're, if, they, are not, if, they, if they bring, if, if, you're, if Ukrainian immigrants come into, let's say, Greece, uh, because they uh, are able to perhaps get jobs in Greece or think they can, and the Greek government is not able to financially take care of them, uh, the European Central Bank has not been very happy to give Greece uh, money uh, to deal with its economic problems. And so there's going to be conflict in Greece, conflict in France, conflict in these other countries, because they're not going to be able to get the euros that they need to pay for uh, to support these, these Ukrainians. And uh, Ukrainians being uh, being European, there's going to be a, 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 a desire by European leaders to, to take care of them, but when it begins to affect the European citizens, then, then I, th- I think we will s- start to see a pushback of, you know, go back to your own country, uh, rebuild, U- rebuild Ukraine. In fact, that, that's kind of the rallying cry, I suppose. Uh, you rebuild Ukraine, and uh, we're going to have pl- plenty of political turmoil. Uh, not just because of having to take care of of Ukrainian citizens, but also because of inflation and lack of heating oil and and cold winters and lack of manufacturing. This is a a, a, a disaster. In fact, that was actually my next question, because when you look at all of the fallout from what can only be assessed as the United States' irresponsible management or mismanagement of this whole crisis, uh, you know, France and Italy and Greece and all of these countries, they, they've they, at some point they've got to they've got to say enough because their populations are going to say it's cold. We're hungry. We're feeding these 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 immigrants and all of this because we followed the United States down this anti Russia rat hole. Right. And, and one thing also, there, there will be these spillover effects. So we know, for example, that when people are unemployed, uh, particularly uh, uh, people with family, they, they're going to do something to get money to feed their family. And so we will see a growth in criminal activity. Uh, Ukrainian organized crime is one of the most organized uh, criminal enterprises in Europe. Now that's expanding out to, to the rest of Europe. And so we will see, um, uh, you know, uh, Ukrainian organized crime uh, uh, possibly linking up with uh, organized crime elsewhere. 
uh, we, we, this, this, is, this is going to be quite a social change. And particular types of crime, child trafficking, human trafficking, human trafficking prostitution of exactly, all kinds, exactly, will be, and exactly. desperate, uh, desperate uh, they'll be able to take advantage of desperate families, young women, et cetera, um, that are... Maybe they'll go into the oil, oil business. You know. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor, they, can be wor- they can do something worthwhile. <laughs> Dr. Linwood Taheed, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate uh, that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, sir. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. NATO's next strategic concept document to add China as threat. The alliance releases a strategic concept about every 10 years. Julianne Smith, the permanent U.S. representative to NATO, said yesterday that the alliance will use its upcoming summit in Madrid to outline the new strategic concept document, which will include for the first time what NATO views as threats emanating from China. I have one question to Ms. Smith. Why are you doing this? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer and professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University, Dr. Ken Hammond. Dr. Hammond, as always, welcome back. Glad to be here. I don't get it. Um, this, and I, I don't mean to be flippant or dismissive, but the threats that seem to be emanating from China seem only to really be in the minds of American policymakers. Well, I think that uh, this is a moment to to kind of you know step back a bit and, and and look at the look at the global situation and think about what NATO is. You know, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Obviously, we know historically this was put together after World War II in the context of the Cold War. And in some ways, although it has certainly expanded, unfortunately, in recent years, it remains kind of the the core of of Western capitalist, uh, you know, the, the sort of heartland of Western capitalism. You know, the United States, Canada, the Western European powers, and now, of course, as as we know, sadly, it's been extended to the East with unfortunate consequences. But it is the it is sort of the the, the key military organization uh, at the heart of uh, of Western and and these days predominantly or dominated by American imperialism. China, as we know is is reemerging in the world as a as a powerful force as a as a dynamic economy as a significant player in global affairs trying to you know help out uh, with the uh, development of other countries that have historically been exploited by or excluded from uh western uh you know good graces and uh, and you know the 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 declining powers of of the american empire and of of its its european uh, subordinates they're fearful of that so 
this new strategic orientation by NATO sadly reflects old deep dichotomies in the world between the advanced industrial West, as it used to be, and, uh, you know, the, the, what, what became the colonial or semi-colonial world out there in the 19th and, and, and to the middle of the 20th centuries. That's a bygone uh, way of looking at the world, but it's one that seems deeply lodged in, in certain minds. I guess really what I should have said as a political science scientist to be a little more academic, I should have said China's threat is not offensive in nature. Their promised responses are defensive in nature. Right, exactly. And let me ask you this, too. I I see NATO as an umbrella organization. I see it as something that the United States empire can use to bring all of its vassals, all of its colonies in, in, um, in, in Europe together. And in an orderly fashion, instead of having to dominate them one by one, it can bring them all in the room and tell them what to do at the same time. And I also see the emergence of China and Russia as it is and the other countries that are that are emerging. They see that as such of a th- as, as so much of a threat that in the past they had to at least try to hide that Europe were just colonies and vassals and they had no sovereignty. But now that they're desperate, a they that they that the cat's out of the bag there. So they, they can't hide that anymore. But B, they're using any weapon in their arsenal in NATO. They're reaching for anything they can. And NATO is just another tool they have. So they're just like like a Jackie Chan movie. When you see him fight and he picks up everything, he's running through the room, he's throwing plates, pictures, anything he can get. It's kind of the U.S. is so desperate. They're doing the Jackie Chan thing. And NATO is just another tool that they're throwing at China because they'll do use anything they can. No, I think I think that's a very good, uh, a humorous, but very good analogy. Uh, in that, in that, NATO is always has been, and certainly remains, uh, a pretty direct extension of American military power. America, uh, you know, American military forces uh, are the the core, and and the United States, the Pentagon, uh, still retains control uh, of the command hierarchies. The 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 military forces of the various European countries that are incorporated into NATO are subordinate to American command and control. Uh, you know, and the idea that it's anything other than a a convenient extension of American power uh, is is certainly delusional. It's not like the European Union, which of course has its own problems, but is at least a a European entity. NATO, uh, that that North Atlantic uh, uh, you know preface uh, or, or prefix to it, uh, tells us that it it encompasses both sides of the North Atlantic. And, and basically, that's, that's the signal that it's an American tool, exactly as you say, an instrument of American policy. And as American policy has pushed further and further east and now is, is in direct conflict with, uh, with Russia, you know, uh, they, the NATO is thinking, uh, the Americans are thinking long term. Uh, this is a document, as, as it says in the article, that's designed to uh, exp- you know, extend over the next 10 years. They're looking ahead to what they see as an existential conflict between the declining power of the West and the rising preeminence of, uh, of China. As a political document, because I, I can't imagine that, well, we know the Pentagon knows better. 
I can't because, they, I mean, they add up the troops, they add up the bullets, and they know, well, we, we can't fight China in their backyard and we can't win a fight with Russia in their backyard. So a lot of this is, to me, is more political posturing than actual military muscle flexing. So as a political document, I see this as the Biden administration as part of the American hegemonic empire positioning itself budgetarily to fund the military-industrial complex? Well, that's certainly one aspect of it. Uh, I think that, that uh, that's, and that's a very important one. You know, uh, people, uh, I, I have conversations from time to time. I was just in, in one yesterday with some, uh, some of my grad students talking about, uh, uh, you know, that, that production for war, military production, isn't actually economically productive in the sense that the goods that are produced um, don't really have what we might call, you know, for, for ordinary people, use value. Uh, all they do is generate profits for the, the owners of those productive uh, corporations, you know. So, but they, they've made billions and hundreds of billions, probably trillions of dollars over the, the years, uh, and, and, and they certainly want to continue to do that. So, the threat of war, the menace of war is great because it gives them the capacity to continue to divert revenues from the American government, from the American people, which might otherwise be spent on things like, I don't know, safer schools or infrastructure or health care, you know. But we don't need those things. What we need is bigger and bigger and bigger arsenals of useless weapons to intimidate people around the world. That's just not a healthy kind of political economy. And people who are no longer intimidated. Exactly, yeah, which is kind of odd in that we're being protected from terrorism or whatever. I guess they're protecting our lives while people are dying of easily treatable diseases like hypertension because they don't have, by the millions, because they don't have simple health care. TASS reports, China poses the policy of the U.S. and a number of Western states on incitement of the conflict in Ukraine and considers it necessary to stop ramping up pressure on Russia via unilateral sanctions. Chinese Foreign Minister spokesman, Ministry spokesman, Zhang Lijian said said Wednesday, China is being very clear and very outright about their support for uh, Russia. And it seems to me, while we talk about this as a proxy war on China, I think people are really realizing it is a proxy war against Russia and China. And I think China knows it. Your thoughts? Before you respond, Ken, let me just read one of his statements. China, because this goes back to a point we were making earlier. China opposes the policy of the U.S. and a number of Western states on incitement of the conflict and considers it necessary to stop ramping up pressure. China saying, don't start nothing, won't be nothing. Go ahead, Ken. Well, no, I think that's that's quite right. Um, you know, the 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 American strategy, if we can call it that, uh, the American approach in in Ukraine, uh, pretty clearly is to, you know, let the Ukrainian people hemorrhage their their blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, you know, uh, essentially endlessly. You know, we will continue to pump new weapons in. We will continue to pump new supplies in so that we can sustain the war, keep the war going. Uh, 
We won't get directly involved because the last thing that Biden or, or the Republicans or Democrats in Congress want is images on TV of Americans being killed. But we're very happy to have all those Ukrainians being killed uh, because that makes great, uh, great media. It makes great pictures. It makes great emotionally wrenching stories that allow us to continue to, as the Chinese say, ratchet up the pressure. That doesn't help anybody. It doesn't solve any problems. The U.S. is is, is the real objectives, as you say, are first and foremost to try and and get the the Russian state to implode and beyond that to weaken and, if possible, thwart the the emergence of a multipolar, multicentric world, China being kind of the, the principal target of that, but certainly not the only one. The U.S. wants to maintain its dominance, its hegemony. NATO's a perfect instrument for that, as we were just talking about that. But the war in Ukraine right now is the hot spot. It is the critical arena within which the U.S. is pursuing this proxy policy of, of bleeding the Ukrainian people, not in their own self-interest, but in the interest of, of American dominance. China signals it won't support new sanctions if North Korea tests nuclear weapon. U.S. should consider removing sanctions rather than paying lip service to dialogue. The U.S. should take visible measures to further dialogue with North Korea, like working to remove sanctions rather than just paying lip service to engagement from a Chinese. This is from a Chinese foreign ministry spokesman yesterday. Dr. Hammond, again, China's letting the United States know uh, and, and and quickly, it's, I think important as we talked about before, China doesn't make idle threats. <laughs> Certainly true. You know this 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 question of uh, of you know shifting over over to North Korea, uh, over to East Asia. You know China China has been very very critical and and I think entirely appropriately so of of the U.S. Uh, sanctions regime, if you will, the United States because it has built for itself the capability to control virtually all, or at least until recently, virtually all international financial transactions, has uh, has given itself this weapon of sanctions, which it, it just employs all across the world against anyone who deviates from American policy interests. The idea of, of laying more sanctions on North Korea it's just it's just ludicrous. I mean, how much more pain can they try to inflict on ordinary people in North Korea? Uh, you know, obviously, that's those are the goals of sanctions. Uh, American policymakers, when they're being uh, when they're sort of talking amongst themselves, are quite frank about the idea that the goal isn't, you know, they're not going to hurt. Uh, Kim Jong-un or, or other leaders of, of the state, what they want to do is hurt ordinary people as much as possible in the hopes that that will spark some kind of regime change. That never works. All it does is immiserate people and, and infuriate them and make them, if anything, more supportive, more loyal to the countries, to the governments that are trying to take care of them. So China, I think, is, is quite quite uh, right in opposing further sanctions and saying, Get over it, get serious, get to the negotiating table, and get something done. It heightens the sense of nationalism and makes the leader more powerful because he's able to, or he or she is able to say, well, see, it's them versus us, and, and, and they hate us because we're us. Uh, Dr. Ken Hammond, as always, thank you so much, sir. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Always glad to be here. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. People's Dispatch has a piece. Thousands of extremists allowed to storm Alaska during so-called March of Flags. Thousands of Israeli settlers stormed the Alaska Mosque in occupied East Jerusalem on uh, this past Sunday. Settlers also attacked Palestinians in different parts of the city during the so-called annual March of the Flags, which is held to celebrate the Zionist Israeli government's occupation of the city. What's going on with these continued provocations? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, political analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. My pleasure. So the uh, Zionist Israeli security forces allowed nearly 70,000 settlers to carry out the march through the old city despite Palestinian objections. The settlers marched with Israeli flags and shouted provocation slogans such as death to Arabs. They also gave the call for destruction of Palestinian villages. Speak to this as well as the flag issue in the context of Zionist forces attacking the funeral procession of assassinated journalist Shireen Abu Akleh for people carrying Palestinian flags. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, obviously the whole intention of uh, this march is to uh, kind of uh, rub it in the face of the Palestinian indigenous population of the city to run amok in the old uh, alleyways and force the Palestinian shop owners to close their shops and, and lose income and to make the Palestinians feel that they don't belong in that city and they're not safe in it to, you know, push them to leave the city. Obviously, um, much happened on that day that including, um, you know, attacks on uh, all the international and local journalists that were covering this march. Uh, the, you know, many journalists had their equipment destroyed in front of the quote-unquote Israeli security forces. And uh, in fact, even like the BBC journalists and the France 24 journalists were, uh, you know, spat on, uh, pushed around. And uh, chant with, with chants also telling them, reminding them that their fate could be like Shirin Abu Akli, the, the Palestinian journalist that was assassinated just a week before that. So death threats were given, you know, directed toward journalists that were covering this. And what we saw is from the Western media is actually the BBC editing its piece to hide the fact uh, that its own journalists were being threatened with death for covering this uh, you know this this march. Um, it's basically a march of Nazis in the middle of uh, Jerusalem, uh, carrying a, a different uh, symbol than the Nazi swastika. In this case, the Israeli Star of David, as they call it. So you know, um, in the last 24 hours, actually, there's been at least five Palestinians that uh, were uh, killed by the Zionists. Um, three of them under age. One of them being another journalist uh, from the West Bank. She was uh, coming out of her village to go to her radio station and was shot uh, and assassinated by the Israeli forces. And today, in her funeral, uh, this other journalist 
the, the funeral procession and the pallbearers were also attacked by the Zionist forces. She didn't get as much attention as Shirin Abu Akhli because Shirin Abu Akhli was an, you know, an internationally known journalist uh, with a huge uh, media outlet like Al Jazeera. This one was a local journalist in a local radio station. Um, so the death uh, and the massacres of Palestinians continue, even though that this, uh, you know, flag march uh, ended. You know, when I see, I'm reading the Israeli security forces allowed these people to uh, do the march, but it seems to me that it's more than allowed. It seems to me that, I mean, it's an officially sanctioned event. It seems like it's not independent of the government in that if the if the security forces are, you know, watching it, if they're watching illegal activity and abuses of other people and people being um, attacked, if they're they're watching over that, then it is, you know, an official sanctioned event of the government and, 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 and supported, it seems to me. Your thoughts? Yes, definitely it is. It's uh, the government supported the a, you know, racist march. Uh, one thing that we, we need to point out is actually this uh, time they were supposed to break into the Aqsa Mosque and uh, conduct some animal sacrifices with their cultist, uh, uh, you know, behavior. And just uh, two nights before the, this march, uh, you know, the Israeli courts ruled that these fanatics can actually conduct these animal sacrifices inside the Aqsa Mosque with their cultist behavior. And, uh, you know, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, the resistance movement in Lebanon, came out on television and threatened that if that, those animal sacrifices are conducted in the uh, holy sanctuary of the Aqsa Mosque, that they will be a, you know, a regional war. And within two hours of that threat by Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, Israeli courts rescinded their order and banned those uh, sacrifices uh, from happening on uh, the Aqsa Mosque. So we can see clearly that the Zionists are not really able to achieve uh, their goal of stamping the city with their logo, saying that they have control of it. In fact, the Palestinians marched uh, in Jerusalem with Palestinian flags. There was a drone flying over these uh, fanatics with a Palestinian flag, which freaked them out, which means that till today, since 1967, we're 30-somewhat you know, uh, years uh, after and uh, 50 some more years, sorry, after now I'm losing track of years, this, this uh, abomination uh, of the Zionist colony is still existing. Uh, and the Zionists cannot uh, actually assert their force over the city. In fact, if you could follow up quickly on the old city and who is supposed to be in charge of it, who's responsible, because the way that this article reads the old, that this took place despite Palestinian objections in the old city and that Palestinians alleged that settlers were allowed to enter the Alaska compound. So who's supposed to be in control of the old city and what is the and based upon what authority? Yeah, so this is an occupied city. It was occupied in 1967. So under international law, it is still Palestinian land. It is not acknowledged by uh, the United Nations as part of the quote-unquote Zionist colony. 
Um, uh, but what we're talking about when we talk about the Aqsa Mosque and the compound of the Aqsa Mosque, the holy sanctuary, this is a holy site that is controlled by the uh, waqf, the, the uh, religious authorities of Islam, uh, and uh, that are actually um, controlled by Jordan, who was the 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 power that was in control of Jerusalem before 1967. So um, it doesn't matter if this if the Zionists occupy the city. Imagine if uh, right now some Muslim fanatics or Christian fanatics decided to go into a synagogue in New York and uh, conduct their prayers and uh, religious sacrifices inside that uh, synagogue. We know that this is a desecration of a holy site. We know that this is unacceptable by any terms. And therefore, it doesn't matter if the Zionists claim control of the city. That doesn't give them the right to desecrate somebody else's holy site. And them conducting themselves by that and trying to claim that their uh, legal authority allows them to do so is uh, clearly a violation of uh, the basics of human norms. And for anyone who thinks that uh, what uh, Leith is saying is some kind of crazy conspiracy theory, you can go to the Times of Israel and look up an article, Six Extremist Jews Arrested for Planning Animal Sacrifice Atop Temple Mount. Read that article, and that pretty much substantiates exactly what uh, what Leith is saying. So what's happening in, um, in Pakistan? I understand we've got an, a People's Dispatch article, Political Tensions Intensify in Pakistan Amid Massive Protests. Leith. Yes, of course, uh, some of your listeners may know a few weeks ago, uh, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, um, uh, Imran Khan, dared to say that they will not be uh, slaves of the West and they will act as a sovereign country and care for their own uh, needs uh, when it comes to the issue of the war in Ukraine. And uh, as a result of that, within, you know, a few days of that statement, we saw basically what uh, could only be described as a coup uh, where the prime minister was ousted and a a prime minister from the opposition was was, uh, put into power. And here we have since that day, there's been demonstrations all across Pakistan. There's been marches in support of Imran Khan. And many of those marches have been attacked by the security forces. And, um, you know, just to point out, the intelligence forces and the military of Pakistan have been beholden to the American uh, security apparatuses since the beginning of the Afghan wars in the uh, early 80s and late 70s. So, you know, here is a prime minister who, you know, stood up for his country, who tried to make sure that his country doesn't starve in this situation, as we see the whole world now is is on the edge of starvation because of uh, the uh, American war in Ukraine. And uh, the result is his own uh, security uh, forces are uh, actually working against him. It's, it's, a, it's a hard situation for many countries that have been, um, you know, for a long time beholden by Western powers and are trying to, uh, you know, find their best for their people and a sovereign uh, position. 
So President Biden told us a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, that he supports uh, sovereignty. He supports democracy. Countries need to be allowed to 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 do what they're uh, to 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 support the wishes uh, of of their electorates. And so this really seems when you've got the uh, Shabazz Sharif government conducting raids and mass arrests of his opponents, 1,700 people have been arrested and houses of 4,500 uh, 4, protesters have been raided. Uh, that sounds to me to be very oppressive. That sounds to me to be authoritarian. Uh, you know, we're supposed to be fighting authoritarianism. That's why we're against Maduro in Venezuela. That's why they're trying to get Putin out of Russia. That's why they can't deal with Xi in China is because they're all authoritarians. So I see some inconsistency here, Leith. Yeah, it's just because you didn't hear what he said under his breath. He said countries should have have the right to uh, sovereign decisions as long as they approve, agree with the United States. So he said that, yes, exactly. So this is where it is. It's the same thing with the issue of a rule-based order. Uh, we'll set the rules and you better follow them. That's basically how it works. Uh, and of course, uh, much of the world right now has seen uh, how things played out in, in any country that dare to dive, deviate even slightly from uh, American dictates. Uh, you know, in, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, we see what's happening right now in Ukraine. We see what happened in Yugoslavia. We, of course, saw what happened in Haiti. Uh, for Aristide uh, just just daring to say France has to pay back for the colonial uh, looting of the country, and 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 we see where where that led uh, Haiti. So countries need to actually uh, that want sovereignty need to be ready for the fight. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening, guys. You too. Thank you. Folks, you're listening uh, to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams has the story facing activist pressure, Pillsbury pulling out of Israeli-occupied West Bank. While General Mills framed the decision a strategic one, quote, to drive superior returns, end quote, activists said the development proves the power of campaigning. And remember, last July, Ben and Jerry's announced that it would end sales of its ice cream in the occupied Palestinian territory. How significant of a move is this by General Mills and the Pillsbury Doughboy? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an Israeli-American activist and author. Uh, his books are The General's Son, The Journey of an Israeli in Palestine and Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. Miko Peled, as always, Miko, welcome back. 
Thank you. Good to be with you, gentlemen. So I, I can understand the General Mills statement, they want to drive superior returns, because if people are starting to boycott your products, <laughs> that's going to impact your bottom line. But talk about the significance of this by a company, a U.S. company as old as Pillsbury. You know, it's it's a good thing. I mean, there's no question. Boycott works. We know that boycotts work. We know that the big companies, when they have to, you know, yield, uh, they don't like to admit it. So they make up some story that whatever it was driven by other issues, by other reasons, for other reasons. But we know that boycotts work, and uh, it's a good thing that they moved. There is a there is a you know another issue here, which is that really. Um, while the boycotts usually focus on the Palestinian territories that Israel took in 1967, they ignore the Palestinian territories that Israel took in 1948, which is the lion's share of Palestine. Most of Palestine, almost 80% of Palestine, was occupied by Israel in 1948. And that somehow is being ignored, and all the focus is given to boycotting and demanding that um, you know all these you know all these companies stop working within the within the territories of 1967. There's a larger issue here that I think is more is, is important to you know bring to light, which is that all of Israel is occupied Palestine. There's no Palestinian territories that are not occupied. You know, as we saw, and as we've been seeing, Jerusalem is occupied. You know, Jaffa is occupied. All of Palestine is occupied. The Galilee, Nazareth, it's all occupied territory. It's all of Palestine's occupied territory. And people, companies, corporations should not be doing business with, in other words, anywhere within Israel until this occupation is over. So that's a larger kind of issue. But uh, to the point that you're making, yes, of course it's important. It's a good thing. Question is where they're going to move to and what they're going to do. There were cases like with SodaStream, they moved out of the West Bank, but now they are uh, they're using uh, Palestinian cheap labor in other parts of the country, and Palestinians are being and you know excuse my expression they're screwing Palestinians just in another part of the country. Members of the American Friends Service Committee, which is a Quaker peace group that launched the No Doe for Occupation campaign to boycott Pillsbury, they credited their activism with this move. I did not realize that that there were Quaker peace groups that were working uh, towards these efforts. And so if you could just quickly speak to the impact that the Quakers are having here. Oh, the Quakers have been involved for a very long time. The AFSC, the American Friends Service Committee, has been involved in this issue of Palestinian rights and supporting the, the call for boycott for a very, very long time. And um, yeah, obviously this was a successful campaign. Again, my, my, my criticism is that it's not going far enough, that it's not including all of occupied Palestine. It's not including all of Israel. But um, and and I think this is an example that shows that boycott does work, and therefore we need to expand it, and we need to go beyond what is happening right now. But yes, the Quakers have been part of this, uh, uh, supporting the Palestinian struggle. The Quakers have had a school in Ramallah. You know, the Quaker school in Ramallah is very well known. It's been there for for decades and decades and decades. 
for a very long time, and they've had a very important impact, a very positive impact. This month, the City University of New York Law School faculty unanimously passed a resolution endorse, endorsing the BDS movement, um, joining a chorus of American universities advocating for Palestinian rights, and just like clockwork, a New York City council, councilwoman, Ina Vernikova, Ukrainian, actually, pulls the CUNY Law School funding over faculty endorsement of BDS. She is pulling $50,000 earmarked for CUNY as a retaliation, I guess. Your thoughts? Well, you know, student activism around this country is, is, is incredibly courageous. Um, you know, the students on campuses, the, the Palestinian voice on campuses has, I mean, really, they've changed the conversation on Palestine in this country probably more than any other organization, any other group of people. What the students have been doing on campuses over the last two decades is, is just nothing short of remarkable. And they've been paying a heavy price. And uh, here there's always some, either either the, administ- the university administration or, as in this case, the city, uh, somebody in the city administration that wants to uh, get in the way, that wants to punish either the school or the students. Uh, this is a struggle that I think should be expected, is, is expected, um, and um, it just shows you where the, where the politicians stand. But but this is this is a, this is an ongoing struggle. Uh, but like I said, the students uh, participate in heroically throughout the entire country, and they're winning. And I think the politicians are scared because they are, you know, under the Zionist watchful eye, and they want to make sure that they don't, uh, you know, anger the Zionists. Um, but, you know, this is the price that you have to pay when you when you stand up. There's a price to pay. This New York Republican councilwoman, Ina Vernikov, says it seems as if anti-Semitism is the only politically acceptable form of racism which exists. We must stop handing out free passes to anti-Semites like candy. So she's using the she's equating, of course, BDS with anti-Semitism, and we know that 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 trope is is a trope and is BS. And, but also, what I found interesting when I looked her up, looking at her name, uh, Vernikov, she is of Ukrainian extraction. So here, the United States is funding Nazis in the Ukraine, and then here I'm not saying she's a Nazi, but here she is a Ukrainian-American, and she is siding on behalf of the Zionist government in, in Israel. This, to me, is not—and then she wants to use the, you know, BDS as anti-Semitic trope. I just found that whole thing to be—it'd be laughable if it weren't so pathetic. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty absurd. But look, the, 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 she's reading from, you know, talking points that are given to her by APAC or some other, you know, Zionist— um, Zionist group, and that's what they do. They equate, uh, and and because so many uh, governmental and non-governmental agencies have passed a resolution to accept what's called, uh, what's known as the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, boycotting Israel falls under the, you know, falls under the category of anti-Semitism, which, like you said, is is absolute nonsense. Uh, You know, this is what they got. This whole anti-Semitism nonsense is what they got. They're going to spew it over and over and over again. They spewed it over the amnesty reports and how amnesty is an anti-Semitic organization and so on. This is what they do. Uh, I think the fact that they have to stand up and act in this way only demonstrates how weak they are, 
how scared they are and how brittle their um, and, and, and precarious their, their situation is, their condition is. One more, one more point on this, Garland. Uh, I, I haven't looked at the data. I could be off on this, but I don't think I am. Could you speak to the significance of the fact that the Cooney Law School faculty endorses this and there are a number of faculty members that are Jewish? So I think this is really showing the power of BDS within the ranks of American Jews. Yes, well, I mean, you know, the, the, the call for boycott, divestment and sanctions against the state of Israel is universal. It appeals to people's humanity. It appeals to, it appeals to people's sense of justice. Um, it is the, I think, the call, the moral call of our generation. And people of all faiths uh, support it. And so, you know, there's no surprise that there are a lot of Jewish um, faculty, I suppose, in CUNY. But, you know, of course they were to support it. There are many Jewish people support the call for boycott. Many Jewish people participate in, in, uh, actively in, in calling for boycott and sanctions. And really, when we come to think about it, when we look at Israel's actions over the last, never mind the last 75 years, let's talk about the last few months, we know very clearly that nothing but severe sanctions, absolute severe sanctions, is going to make a dent, is going to stop them from, these, from, from their crimes. And so this is absolute, makes absolutely sense as the faculty, I think. It makes absolutely sense for the faculty to support this. Tens of thousands of Israeli Jewish ultra-nationalists marched through Jerusalem on Sunday to demonstrate their hatred towards Palestinians and assert dominance over the militarily occupied city. Many attacked Palestinians and chanted for genocide. This was part of the annual March of Flags on Jerusalem Day. This is reported by the Electronic Intifada. Your thoughts? Yeah, I just posted about this. Actually, this was a video clip that I sent you earlier. I just posted about this. Um, kind of a long uh, statement on my uh, online. Um, you know, this march is an act of war. Uh, you know, it's not a celebration. They, they, you know, it's an annual thing. It's an annual event where thousands and thousands of these uh, young Israelis march through the old city, antagonizing, terrorizing the local Palestinians in their homes, in their businesses, uh, chanting the most racist, um, violent uh, slogans. Uh, and it's really an act of war. This is an act of war against Palestinians, against the Muslim world, against the Arab world. It's an act of terrorism against the local population. It's a provocation. And, um, and I think that's how it needs to be viewed. I mean, this is an attempt. This is, this is kind of a part. It's, it's a very violent part of the attempt to get rid of Palestinians in Jerusalem, to get rid of the Muslim and Christian heritage of the city, to get rid of 2,000-year history of Christian and Muslim uh, life uh, and, uh, and religion and heritage and monuments that exist within the old city of Jerusalem and turn it into something else that's completely Jewish. And it's an act of war that needs to be, you know, needs to be recognized as such. I mean, and Palestinians are obviously are standing up against this. But that's, that's precisely what this march is. I've, been to, I've seen this march many, many times. I've been to Jerusalem when this march took place. It is absolutely horrifying, and uh, there's no, there's no, there's no other way to describe it. In terms of U.S., you you talked about we don't need to talk about the atrocities over the last seventy five years. We can talk about them over the last few months, and there is just about 
total radio silence from the administration. If they say anything, it's it's so weak and 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 baseless that it, it means absolutely nothing. There's no response from a policy perspective from this administration. Yes, I mean, you know, Israel, Israel assassinated uh, a, a, a journalist who was, who was an American Palestinian. Uh, you'd think the American government would do something about this. I mean, even CNN stated that all the evidence clearly shows it was a targeted assassination. I would add to that that a targeted assassination of that caliber, you know, they're picking out a journalist that is such a high-profile journalist. You know, she was well-known. She's been around for decades. Had to, the order, or at least the okay, had to come from the very, very top of the command, either the defense minister or the prime minister himself. There's no way a local commander makes a decision to take out Shirina Barkley, who is a, she's a, she's a household name in Palestine. Um, and the American government is, you know, just, just doing nothing. And um, this is this is typical of, of, of how severe the, 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 the situation is in Palestine because America is enabling it. Miko Peled, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Uh, Haiti Liberté has a piece entitled, Is the U.S. Covering Up Its Role in Moise's Murder? There are growing signs that Washington may have played a greater part in the July 7, 2021 assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise than previously understood. What's going on here, and why is the U.S. in control of this Haitian issue? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. She's an associate professor of uh, Black Studies and Anthropology Apology at the University of California, Los Angeles, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of Black Agenda Report, Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always. And she's joining us now from Cali, Colombia. Dr. Pierre, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So I know you're there as an election observer. Give us some uh, some insight into what you're experiencing. What's the lay of the land? What's happening on the ground? Yes. Yeah, so the uh, of course the elections happened on May 20 29th. Um, and uh, so we were there. So I should back up and say I was there serving in, uh, as an observer with an international delegation of mostly black women. Um, we actually had the largest, in the history of Colombia, the largest delegation uh, observing elections ever. And there were 29 of us and we were mostly black women. I came with the group um, Afro Resistance and Grassroots Global Justice. And part of the reason was because this was a historic presidential election. Not only um, was a leftist presidential ticket leading in the polls, that's Petro, but also the vice presidential candidate is Francia Marquez, 
who is a Af- very well-known Afro-Colombian feminist activist, really radical feminist activist, um, um, who was the vice presidential candidate. And up until, you know, after it was announced that she would be the vice presidential candidate, there's been quite a bit of, they were received death threats. You know, Colombia is being has been ruled by a very right-wing government. You know, it was uh, Uribe and then Duque. And so uh, the, the fact that there's a leftist um, party that gained the um, uh, the majority of the votes is really scary to the establishment and scary to the U.S. If you watch the U.S. news, you'll see they're they're already um, you know raising up the 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 that that there might be a coup d'état if the less if the left win won. So I'm here to observe that we we went from you know um, we uh, to combine we visited about 33 um, voting sites. Um, half of us went to Buenaventura, which is the uh, majority black population, and then the rest of us stayed in Cali. And we went from um, election place to election place to just see that. And I can tell you more about that because there's wide difference in terms of the mostly black and brown places that did the military was there and, and being intimidating, whereas the places that were mostly, that were whiter and more rich barely had a military or police presence. Well, it sounds like uh, there's a there's much work to be done in Colombia, and you're the person there that's doing it. So keep up the good work. <laughs> now, <laughs> Haiti, you. your spe- your yeah. your area of expertise is the U.S. covering up its role in Moise's murder. There are growing signs that Washington may have played a greater part in the July 7th assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise than previously understood. Your thoughts. Well, I mean, I've been saying this the last few times we've talked about Haiti and I said there's nothing that happens in Haiti without the U.S. knowing. And the fact that the FBI, U.S. FBI, ran to Haiti right after the assassination and basically took all pieces of evidence from Moise's um, um, house and brought it to the U.S. tells you that they knew from the very beginning. And so a lot of us have been saying that none of this could have happened. This is this brazen assassination. The funding of the assassination would not have happened without U.S. knowing. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, the fact that the you know that the judges have been have hidden evidence from the Haitian lawyers, from from so on, from other people. Also demonstrates that they actually are much deeper into it than than we have to. Um, that then 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 um, that then we that we should know. And I don't know if you remember. You know, people were saying we saw the first tapes of the uh, of the uh, when they stormed the former president's house. But, Pep, the person said, this is a DEA operation, right? And so we know the DEA is all over it, the CIA is all over it, the US FBI is all over it, and they're working in concert with these elites in that ruling party that control the cash, and they're out of Miami. And remember, they haven't they haven't uh, arrested anyone in the three main characters in Miami that actually funded the operation. And it's also important to know that the the assistant U.S. attorney, Walter Norkin, asked U.S. Judge Jose Mar- Martinez to hide evidence, as you just talked about, using the Classified Information Procedures Act. That legislation is designed to thwart a potential threat to U.S. national security. The law is normally invoked in terrorism or espionage cases according to former acting U.S. attorney in Washington, Michael Sherwin. So the, the, to your point, why is the United States government hiding information or, or evidence under the Classified Information Procedures Act for an assassination of a president in Haiti? 
Right. And the other question is, why is this happening in the U.S. court? Well, that that was my open. That that was my open. (laughs) Why is the United States handling an assassination that took place in 80? I I don't remember the JFK. I I was going to say, I don't remember the JFK assassination. I don't remember any trials or anything happening in Haiti. (laughs) Oh, go ahead. Exactly. Well, I mean, that just tells you two things. One of the most important things is that Haiti is not a sovereign country. The U.S. has completely stripped it uh, of its sovereignty since the 2004 coup d'etat against Aristide, where they installed, you know, people after people, uh, puppet after puppet. But also since they installed Martelly and the PHDK party, these, you know, craven uh, criminals, uh, ruthless criminals, um, you know, the U.S. has run Haiti. The U.S. and the core group run Haiti. And they run everything about Haiti. So the reality is that's why I'm saying this assassination would not have happened without a go ahead from the higher ups in the U.S. government. And we should know that. And the, the reason also I think it's interesting that this is coming out is because they don't care whether or not, who knows, <laughs> you know, because it's just Haiti, right? Um, the, the, the Western press has already constructed Haiti as this, a basket case of these Negroes who can't rule themselves. And so they can get away with doing everything they can on, uh, about Haiti, and no one will really put up a fight. Third suspect in Jovenel Moise's assassination brought to Miami to appear in court, a former Haitian senator who faces new U.S. charges in the assassination of uh, President Moise, um, uh, he, uh, he attended a key meeting with Colombian commandos on July 6th, the day before the alleged assassination, at his suburban home outside of Port-au-Prince. Uh, this, all of these little tidbits of information all support the conversation that we were having with you months ago about the assassins came out of Colombia. That's where the United States goes when it wants to find hitmen for the region, so on and so on and so on. And the guy said, I trust the American justice system. I think there's a reason. <laughs> I, I mean, if, if the American justice system, I'll put it like this. You get what you pay for. You're not going to hear Julian Assange say that, <laughs> Dr. Pierre. Right. Exactly. And, and and part of it, these are the fall guys, right? Because the real people behind this assassination still remain the, the some of the lead people, including the so-called prime minister that was imposed on by the U.S. who's involved in the assassination. Everyone knows there's been evidence that he was involved in the assassination. And we have to ask, also ask about Michel Martelly, um, who most Haitians believe was involved in the assassination. So part of it is that the U.S. is protecting its, you know, its assets. In, and we know they have assets. And this guy just happens to be one of the fall guys who, who was not, you know, in close enough to not be, to not be a fall guy. <laughs> right. And so the reality is it's, it's they're going to get all the lower level, you know, Haitians, these stupid senators who don't know any better than to trust the U.S. when, when you're trying to do something, knowing that you're always going to be the fall guy. And then the main, the main uh, supporters of, of the main, the main people who funded and supported this work are going to, including U.S. citizens, um, non-Haitian citizens, including the U.S. State Department, we have to know they're part of this, uh, including some of the, you know, millionaires in the in the party, the PHTK party, the Martelly funders. Um, you know, they spent twenty million dollars for this operation. None of these people are going to come to justice. It's just going to be the low-level low Haitian guys who are duped into into following this. Well, here's the other thing: when you look over it, you find that the people that were involved they collaborated with a Miami area security firm. So these are some of them were American actual American citizens. They were working out of um, on American uh, 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 out of the American, you know, the United States uh, uh, proper to 
conduct an operation which took out a foreign leader. Imagine if it was any country. Imagine if it was Moscow. And they found out. Imagine if it was China, if it was Iran, and they found out that a bunch of people in Tehran plotted to kill the American president, they would say Iran did it and they'd launch a war. But for some reason, the U.S. and Miami can plot all of these things. And for some reason, the argument is, no, no, it happened in America and there were Americans involved, but it has nothing to do with actually America. Well, you just answered, you just answered my question. And, and uh, Dr. Pierre, I think you'll understand this. Garland just answered the question, why is all of this being done in U.S. courts? Well, because it was planned in the United <laughs> States, it was paid for by the United States, so therefore the United States must have jurisdiction over <laughs> prosecuting. <laughs> uh, former Senator John Joel Joseph, who had been detained in Jamaica before being brought to Miami last Friday, admitted to FBI agents in a January interview, I don't know where they get that information from, but anyway, that he met some accomplices just before they, quote, went into the mission to kill President Moise end quote. This is according to an affidavit filed with the complaint. He also admitted in the interview he helped obtain vehicles, attempted to obtain firearms for the co-conspirators, operation targeting the Haitian leader, according to this affidavit. So they now have documents submitted in court laying out this guy's involvement. Dr. Pierre. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and part of it is then the, they and what they sealed is who paid for it, who paid for this guy. You know, this guy was sent in to to meet with these killers, but who paid for the killers, right? Who paid the three thousand dollars a month per 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 assassin to hang out in Haiti for a month or so before they did the before they conducted this assassination? So yeah, so I so the guy you know, we all know this is what happened. Somebody paid for the car. Somebody you know somebody housed the uh, these assassins. They were in the, the they were in the Dominican Republic. There's also the money was actually sent through the Dominican Republic. And so we also have to wonder. We have to ask what the Dominican Republic government's role is in this assassination because they played a dubious role in the history of Haiti for a long time, and they were also behind you know the 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 coup at, coup d'état against Aristide in 2004. So it's a bunch of really. This is a if this is not an imperialist. <laughs> uh, this is an imperialist project through and through. You have a country that has no sovereignty that's being run by the Haiti. And the other thing to me is, you know, I think Haiti is always a laboratory. I always say that to people. It's the longest neocolonial project. A laboratory in the sense that they try things on Haiti, see how people respond, and then they'll try it elsewhere, right? So now we don't even have the need for new regime change. We can just go in and kill have an assassinated president <laughs> and then keep it moving. And the world goes on and nobody says anything. It's been a year, right? And so you can imagine what this, you know, what when you hear in the news, for example, that Trump considered going in and assassinating Maduro. So you can see this is tried on Haiti and we can expect this to be tried in other places that they don't like. And so we need to remember that Haiti might seem completely like it's nothing to most people, but they try everything on Haiti first and then try it on everybody else. Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, thank you so much. We look forward to having you back. And, and Garland, let me also add, since the FBI is involved in all of this, I wonder if John Durham is going to get involved in this, and as he did with Sussman, and that's how it all just seems to go away. Right. <laughs> right. Dr. Exactly. Pierre, thank you so much. Be safe. Look forward to having you, talk, having you back. Thanks so much for having me. Take well, care. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Maduro's success, principled resistance to imperialism pays off. The world has been stunned by a double wonder, Bolivarian Venezuela's political survival and its miraculous economic recovery. The Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean has reported that it expects the Venezuelan economy to grow for the first time since 2014 by 5%, one of the highest in the region. Is this an example of principled policy based upon the needs of the people you're elected to serve? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He hosts Voices of Vision, uh, Voices with Vision, on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. He's a Pan-Africanist, internationalist organizer, and a member of Black Alliance for Peace, Netfa Freeman. As always, Netfa, welcome back. As always, thank you for having me. So Venezuela's rate of inflation has come down from the something like 10 million percent, as reported by CNBC in 2019, and described as the biggest economic disaster in modern history by the Washington Post in the same year, to 7.1 percent in September of 2021 and to an incredible 1.4 percent in March of 2022. Corn production, essential for Arepas, uh, Venezuela's staple food, has increased by 60 percent, rice production 17 percent, with an increase of non-oil exports of 76 percent. Netfa, this sounds like President Maduro has things moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and I think we also shouldn't underestimate the role of the people and the role of the fact that this is a socialist project um, in in this turnaround performance, um, there's a few things, some things that they that Venezuela may not even have, they didn't bring about or could have anticipated, but they have been, um, you know, developing their export, you know, ability to export not only oil, but other things. And then also domestic trying to focus on domestic production and consumption. And that's very important because, you know, under imperialism, you know, the whole, when you, when you submit yourself to imperialism, it's always designed to extract and exploit countries. And that to the point where countries can't even focus on their own, their internal production and the needs of their domestic population. So in order to try to do that under, and under very, uh, harsh conditions in this in this time that we're living in they've been able to focus on that and a lot of that has to do with the mass organizations the unions the communes all that kind of stuff and so these these i think more than anything in terms of how the people are organized uh are the reason why this turnaround and then we also have to look at and this is the part i meant in terms of them not being able to anticipate is uh the, the fallout from the u.s war in um, U.S. proxy war in Ukraine, uh, because you know we know the U.S. has had sanctions against Venezuela and so many other countries um, that have been part of the major reason why the economy has been doing so bad and crippling. That's, that's what the sanctions are designed to do. But in this war with Ukraine, we see that their love, the U.S. is also trying to and this uh, overstretching itself and trying to level sanctions against uh, uh, Russia. And then, and just trying to make things difficult in that region of the world, and so have has, has in turn to do this to net to juggle all this, I've had to circle back 
the Venezuela and and try to you know, somewhat I won't say hat in hand because they're really still too powerful for that, but try to rescind some of its hostilities in order to have oil exports from Venezuela and and with to the credit of the revolutionary Bolivarian uh, government there, they said, hey, you know, we're gonna have to negotiate that. You're gonna have to lift some of these sanctions, and so the lifting of the sanctions, some of them, because they still take their imperialist regime change position against Venezuela, and doing that has been very helpful for the economy in in a rapid way. Um, but these are all the things that have come together that are coming together in terms of Venezuela that, you know, that bode well. But I think it's very important and uh, that we don't underestimate uh, the, the role of the mass organizations that, and, and people. We don't, uh, we can't understand something like that here. Mass organizations facilitate the participatory democracy that are in places like, not just Venezuela, but places like Venezuela, all these countries they claim are dictatorships. They have mass, uh, they have participatory democratic Thing. Some some of which a lot of which the liberals here, the liberal even liberal progressive liberals that can, can claim that they're against imperialists and, and these kind of uh, policies will always never go. They always want to see see these countries as extreme left. They're imperfect. If we talk about the participatory democracy, they want to raise up how imperfect it is and and claim that those of us like uh, on the revolutionary left, I would say, romanticize about it. But there's nothing like that in the U.S. Regardless, we know it's imperfect, and these same people are not committing themselves to try to have something at least tantamount to it here. The U.S. has nothing like that. There's no, no right to, you know, so they don't really have a right to speak about what's going on there just because it's imperfect. It's actually showing some, <laughs> panning out for the Venezuelans and, and the uh, people in the region. You know, when I was there, I saw in Caracas, I saw a big mural. You know, they have a lot of murals, and it had a picture of like a hand, two hands shaking, and one of them had a Venezuela flag, and one of them was the Iranian flag. And if you could speak to the Russia, I know Russia, China, and Iran have been a big part of helping um, Venezuela, also Cuba, Nicaragua, the um, kind of anti-imperialist block around the world that is all, that all of those countries are under direct assault by the U.S. Empire, but how they factor into helping Venezuela and any Nicaragua, Cuba, et cetera, survive these sanctions and in, even in this instance start to really um, grow and flourish. Right. Um, so, well, there's a lot there. One that I think the U.S., these countries are demonstrating why cooperation versus, you know, competition is really how we survive, how people should survive. In the case of the Venezuela and Iran, we know, we remember that the Iran had actually, and when Venezuela was having a hard time uh, with its oil production and even export oil, uh, having its own oil problems, Iran was there to try to help mitigate that. These are oil producing countries and they and not that we want to see oil obviously is not but this is this is the world they inherited, not created. And so we have to and at least to their credit, these countries credit, they use the oil generating revenues to help their uh, domestic population or help domestic populations or their economy. And at the same time, in this example that you're raising, we're talking about uh, cooperation, international cooperation, the same with China. So imports, and uh, these are sanctioned countries that are having to uh, navigate these sanctions, international sanctions, by cooperating with each other, despite their, you know, the demonization, despite them being blocked blocked out of international financial institutions and being able to use of them. And so this, in terms of trade, in terms of the energy sectors, all of that 
their cooperation is boding well. So that's, you know, that's what I would say with that. You know, it, it's also interesting that as the Venezuelan economy is growing, you talk about cooperation. Maduro is not only seeing to it that Venezuelans benefit, but uh, he took he condones the $70 million debt to St. Vincent and the Grenadines, reduced half the size of the debt to other members' countries, the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, restarted the agreement with the countries affiliated to uh, Petro-Carib with 35% discount for oil. The only thing I can see in, in the region is anti-imperialism, anti-neocolonialism spreading greatly, not from an ideological perspective, but from a practical, real politique perspective. Right. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what else to add to that, because that's what it is. Um, and that, but, and, but I would say that in some ways we'd have to, uh, there's some ideological aspects to that in a sense that the Bolivarian Revolution uh, founded on, like inspired by and founded on the visions and, and the practices of Hugo Chavez. Remember, they, they started the ALBA, you know, the ALBA of the ALBA, you know, cooperation in the region and the Petro Caribe was all the way back then and and the, it was only because of, and this was based on sort of a, a, a vision or, or principles of cooperation and helping other countries. And so these things have been interrupted, you know, tried to be sabotaged by imperialism. And so, and that at the the same time, the countries, and this is where you're, you're, you're spot on in the sense it's a practical because under any other types of the neoliberal types of paradigm, paradigm, the countries are seeing suffering. The countries are seeing, you know, inflation go up. And so from a practical perspective, they know, and it's, it's proven before to work uh, the practical practicality of it. And so, and then right now the U.S., uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't want to go too far over. The U.S.'s credibility is being shot because it, on, it can only offer punitive measures and disruption and neoliberalism and undermining and militarism and subverting, like in the case of Haiti, where they stopped the Petro-Caribe uh, Caribe, uh, cooperation, but also support dictatorship and, and you know, and, um, people that were ruling by decree and all this kind of stuff. So the rhetoric they use uh, is, is falling flat on its face. Find an article in the Progressive, Biden's insistence on continuing the U.S. policy of exclusion and aggression against Latin America has made his summit a failure before it has even began the so-called uh, Summit for Democracy of the U.S. Empire. Your thoughts? Oh, wow. So, uh, so one of the things that they talk about that is, you know, we're not going to invite you Venezuela and Nicaragua because they don't respect democracy yet. It's in the, in the U.S. that student debt, uh, the rights of women over their bodies, Medicaid for all, even the blockade of Cuba are not popular policies that the U.S., but yet the U.S. holds them up. In fact, people want to see the opposite reflected, cancellation of student debt, uh, all these things. And yet, um, but, the, you know, that shows that there's not democracy here. In these other countries that they're claiming aren't democracies, these are rights that are guaranteed. There's no student, there's no such thing as student debt. They have universal education. You know, there's, uh, there's universal health care. You know, they don't have block, they don't blockade other countries or do any types of aggressions. So, and then if you can see, it's falling flat on its face now, I, I mean, I keep using that term, but the U.S.'s legitimacy in, domestically and internationally is waning 
this summit, while they're denying them, they didn't expect this backlash of all, all these countries that are saying they're going to boycott the summit if these countries aren't able to, to, to participate. I don't know why the U.S. didn't see this kind of thing going. If you remember back in 2015, and they're making a big thing out of Obama shaking hands with uh, Chavez at that summit, they were at that time they were denying Cuba. And all of these countries were, were saying you can't deny Cuba. Cuba doesn't care about the summit anyway, but they, they say you shouldn't be denying them and whatnot. But they were facing some uh, things backlash back then uh, around this, and it's only grown because of the aggressive, aggressive policies. So, you know, one thing I say about that, though, there's a statement that Black Alliance for Peace did on this a few times that people should, a few uh, weeks ago that people should check out on BlackAllianceForPeace.com, and we say that, you know, the U.S. doesn't even have the moral authority or legitimacy legitimacy to host the summit, even if they invited Cuba and Venezuela in turn and reversed this policy, their practices of aggression, imperialism and domination and, and militarism disqualify them from even being able to host a, such a summit. And right now you see there is a lot of demonstrations that are gearing up in, in Los Angeles to talk about shutting it down. And so the, the, the legitimacy of this country is uh, is being exposed. The illegitimacy of the country and its policies and imperialism is being exposed. As as we get out, I remember being at Howard and, and talking to some students from Libya, and I asked them about tuition. They didn't understand the concept of tuition. What do you mean you would pay to go to college? Why would you do that? In our country, is free. Why are you all doing that? That mean I had to explain the concept. It was so foreign to them. Ned Freeman, uh, as always, man, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.